0: Section 2 of Modern Russian Literature by D.S. Mirsky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 2. From Turgenev to Leskov The first of the great novelists to win general recognition at home and afterwards abroad was Ivan Sergeyevich Turgenev. He was born in 1818 in the province of Orel, central Russia. His father was a retired cavalry colonel. He married for money an heiress who was neither young nor good-looking. First love is supposed to contain the portraits of Turgenev's parents. His mother's youth was made miserable by dishonest guardians. Her husband never loved her. She became a domestic tyrant, making life intolerable to all those dependent on her, to her serfs and to her son. She had no connections in society, and Turgenev grew up alone. In eighteen thirty four he was sent to the University of Saint Petersburg. There he made the acquaintance of Professor Plitnyov, one of Pushkin's most intimate friends. This connection is of importance, it is a link with the great age. It marks Turgenev off from all his contemporaries, and makes him, as it were, the depository of the best tradition in an age when tradition had few votaries. But his connection with the elder contemporaries, the young idealists and radicals who became the fathers of the intelligentsia, was more decisive. He met with them when he went, in 1838, to Berlin to follow Hegel's philosophical course. There were many young Muscovites there attracted by German idealism. Yet, as Turgenev said later on, what they wanted from philosophy was everything except pure thought. Turgenev himself had little use for philosophy, but he was attracted by the idealism and aesthetic culture of these compatriots, and henceforward he became one of them, a man of the 40s. The most prominent members of the group were the brilliant and short-lived Stankevich, 1830-1840, and the famous critic Belinsky. It included all that was best and most promising among the progressive young men of the generation. In 1840, Turgenev came back to Moscow. He took his degree and had at one time the idea of becoming a scholar but instead he became a poet. His verse began to appear regularly in the magazines of his friends, and in 1843 he published his first book, Parasha, an ironical tale in verse reminiscent of Lermontov and of Byron, which was enthusiastically reviewed by Belinsky. Turgenev began to be considered as the rising hope of Russian poetry. In the next two years he published several new poems, but he soon realized that it was not in verse that he was to achieve great things. After 1846 he published no more poetry. He never allowed his early verse to be reprinted and did not like to be reminded of it. It is not of the very highest order and, of course, not to be compared with his prose. Yet this poetical apprenticeship is important. Turgenev owed to it the verbal discipline and elegance, which distinguishes his prose from that of his contemporaries who had never handled meter. He began writing prose in 1844, but his first few stories are immature, full of a rather obsolete romanticism, and of a certain violence of color, which is very unlike what we have come to associate with his name. These years were the hardest for him. In 1845, he met the famous singer Pauline Garcia, Mademoiselle Viardot, and there began his hopeless and fruitless attachment to her, which lasted all his life. Pauline Garcia responded with nothing better than a cool friendship. This love affair is partly responsible for the unhappy ending of all Turgenev's love stories. Turgenev's mother strongly disapproved of his attachment to the actress, as well as of his literary activities. She stopped giving him money, and the years 1845 to 1848 were the only period of his life that he spent in something like poverty. In 1848 she died, leaving him a considerable fortune. In 1846, Turgenev published the first of his sportsman's sketches, Hor and Kalinich. It appeared in a periodical, Nikrasov's Sovremennik, in an inconspicuous place, and at first attracted little attention. Sketches continued to appear in the Sovremennik, and in 1852 they were collected into a book, which produced a sensation, and placed Turgenev in the very first rank of Russian writers. In these sketches, hardly any one of them can be called a story, Turgenev's genius reached its full stature. He never again wrote anything quite as perfect as, for instance, Bajin Meadow, the chapter, to quote Henry James, in which he spends a warm summer night lying on the grass, listening to the small boys who are sent out to watch the horses at pasture, as they sit chattering to each other of hobgoblins and fairies. And the truly beautiful description of a singing match between two ragged peasants, the singers, the latter is simply a perfect poem." From the point of view of absolute all-round perfection, This last story is perhaps the crowning glory of Russian prose. Turgenev never wrote anything more concentratedly beautiful. Besides their matchless artistic perfection, the sportsman's sketches are supposed to have had a great historical importance as anti-serfdom propaganda. They are said to have made a decisive impression on the future emperor Alexander II, and thus to be an indirect cause of the emancipation. But this aspect of the book has been grossly exaggerated. The political impression it produced only testifies, to quote Henry James again, to no small culture on the part of Russian readers, for never surely was a work of polemic bearing more consistently low in tone, The truth is that the unprejudiced reader cannot possibly discern any quote-unquote polemic bearing at all. It needed all the high strong nervousness of Russian society, developed by the unlimited despotism of Nicholas I's last years, to notice the very unobtrusive quote-unquote social note. The period of extreme reaction lasted from the revolutionary year of 1848, the death of the emperor Nicholas in 1855. Turgenev, though in a much lesser degree than Dostoevsky, was to become one of its victims. When in 1852 Gogol died, Turgenev wrote an obituary notice in which he spoke in terms of boundless enthusiasm of his satirical genius. For this article he was banished to his estate, where he had to remain for about 18 months. In this involuntary isolation, he wrote a series of stories, all of which are among his best, including that wonderful masterpiece, The Backwater. In 1853, he was allowed to return to St. Petersburg. He became a central figure in the literary world. Together with Nikrasov and Annenkov, he well-nigh ruled Russian literature. In poetry especially, his influence amounted to a dictatorship. The poems of both the greatest poets of the day, Tchutchev and Fet, used to be amended and, quote-unquote, corrected by Turgenev before they were allowed to see the press. In 1855 the reign of Nicholas I came to an end. With the new reign began a new age, the Age of Reforms, which was also to be the golden age of Turgenev's popularity. In 1856 he published the first of his longer novels, Rudin. This was followed by A House of Gentle Folk, 1858, On the Eve, 1860, and Fathers and Sons, 1862. In between he wrote a few shorter stories, two of which... Asya and First Love are among his most lasting masterpieces. The longer novels were all of them more or less quote-unquote novels with a purpose and had a direct bearing on the problems of the day. Turgenev was certainly influenced by the critics who demanded that novelists should present in their works a creative synthesis of what was going on around them The novelist, according to Chernyshevsky and Dobrolubov, was to be an epitomizer of current history, and Turgenev conscientiously applied himself to the task. When he was not on his best civic behavior, he was promptly reminded of his duty. When Asa was published, a purely human and unpolitical love story Chernyshevsky wrote a critique which transformed it into an allegory of burning actuality. But in the longer novels, the critics had no difficulty in finding the social meaning. In Rudin, for instance, Turgenev represented the type of the eloquent but ineffective revolte of the forties. In House of Gentlefolk. He distilled all that was best in the old conservative civilization of the gentry into the beautiful figure of Liza. In On the Eve, he tried to draw the character of an efficient revolutionary, the counterpart to Rudin. He made his hero, Insarov a Bulgarian. This led the critics to declare that in Turgenev's opinion, Russia was incapable of producing men of action, His answer to the critics was Fathers and Sons, the last of the series. On the Eve is the most quote-unquote civic and the least attractive of Turgenev's novels. Its beauty has faded and even the heroic Elena lacks the charm of Turgenev's other heroines. Fathers and Sons is also civic in conception but unlike on the eve turgenev somehow succeeded in making it a masterpiece which has not faded and probably never will the hero is the "nihilist" the word is of turgenev's coinage materialist and atheist bazarov a quote, "strong silent man" end quote. turgenev most obviously drew him with love and sympathy The radicals, however, took exception to Bazarov and proclaimed him an impertinent caricature. But soon there came up a new set of younger and extremer radicals who gloried in their atheism and materialism, and in their contempt for art and beauty. They accepted Bazarov as a portrait of themselves, recognized him as their ideal, and took up the name of nihilists. Turgenev had out-radicalized the older radicals and prophetically painted a type which, at the time he wrote, had not yet come into existence. This flair for the immediate future has been much emphasized by the commentators of Turgenev, and in the eyes of intelligentsia criticism, it has become his chief titre de noblesse. But it did not make up for the first bad reception of the novel, This first reception had a strong effect on Turgenev. He was oversensitive to popularity and hated being, out of the movement. He never quite recovered from the wound. He stayed abroad and only came back to Russia for short visits. He expressed his profound disappointment in a prose poem, Enough, so ruthlessly and unkindly parodied by Dostoevsky in The Possessed. Turgenev settled abroad, first at Baden-Baden, and afterwards at Bourgival near Paris. He became practically an emigre and lost touch with the Russian soil. His next novel, Smoke, 1867, is a novel of Russian life abroad. The scene is at Baden-Baden. It is the least perfect of his novels. In it he quite irrelevantly combined... One of his best love stories with a satirical representation of Russian society at Baden-Baden. He satirized both the reactionary noblesse and the radical emigres, and the book is full of bitterness. Turgenev continued writing short stories, which, though they include such masterpieces as Torrents of Spring and A Lear of the Steppes, passed comparatively unnoticed. They are all retrospective, and deal with Russian life before the reforms. In 1877 he published his last novel, Virgin Soil, once again taking up a civic theme, the revolutionary propaganda of the populists among the peasants. It appeared a few weeks before the outbreak of the Turkish War and failed to create a sensation. But though almost everything he wrote after 1862 met with a lukewarm reception, his reputation was very far from waning. His earlier work from a sportsman's sketches to fathers and sons had passed beyond the reach of praise or blame. Turgenev had become a classic, and he was generally recognized as the greatest living Russian writer. Tolstoy was as yet fully appreciated only by a very few. Turgenev's last visit to Russia in 1880 turned into a triumphant progress and largely made up for the bitterness caused by the radicals 20 years earlier. During these last years, Turgenev was more and more pessimistic and haunted by the idea of death. He was attracted for a time by spiritualism in its rather crude, quote-unquote, Victorian forms, Clara Mellich, but his last work, The Short Fragments, known as Poems in Prose, gives full expression to his joyless fatalism and unbelief. He died in 1883 in Bougival. For the English reader, there can be no more attractive account of Turgenev's personality than Henry James's delightful essay included in Partial Portraits. The great American was fascinated by the charm of the Russian, and speaks of him in terms of unstinted admiration. In Russian accounts, Turgenev is given a far less attractive character. There can be no doubt that he was more cordial, more sincere, more generous and more simple with foreigners than with Russians. Foreigners, for instance, have often dwelt on his intense patriotism, while to all Russians he appeared as a fastidious cosmopolitan who sneered at his native country. He made friends with French novelists, but not with his Russian compeers. Only those could be his friends who submitted to his superiority without murmuring like the gentle and modest poet Polonsky. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Nikrasov, were all sooner or later compelled to quarrel with him. Fet was the only man who remained friends with him on terms of equality. But Fet was a man of infinite reserve and singularly self-contained. On the other hand, there was something unmanly both in his dealings with women and in his excessive sensitiveness to what the radicals and the younger generation thought of him. In politics he was a consummate trimmer, and even those who happened to share his views disliked their Laodicean tepidness. He has not inspired his biographers with that hero-worship which is so easily kindled in a biographer, but no one has doubted his great intellect, and all who knew him testified to the inimitable charm of his conversation. Long before his death, Turgenev acquired a European fame. He was translated into and written about in French, German, and English. Footnote. Henry James's first essay was published in 1876, and a footnote. He was an important figure in the French literary world of the day, on friendly terms with Flaubert, and recognized as a master by younger men like Daudet and Maupassant. And when he died, his funeral oration was delivered by Renan. It was about or soon after his death that his fame reached its high watermark both at home and abroad. Melchior de Vauguet, Le Roman Russe, 1885 Since then, it has been eclipsed by that of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. In this country, perhaps, even by that of Chekhov. But it is because their fame has grown, not because Turgenev's has diminished. He is safe in his splendor, which in Russia at least shows no signs of waning. Turgenev lacked the enormous creative power of Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, their vitality, and their deadly earnest intensity. But he had other qualities which neither of his greater contemporaries possessed. First of all, his beautiful, caressing Russian. His prose, at his best, produces an almost physical effect of intoxicating beauty. His language is very much his own creation. He broke away from all literary traditions, from the neat analytical style of Pushkin and Lermontov, as well as from the exuberant eloquence of Gogol. Compared with what came before him, his style is cunningly and consistently colloquial, elaborately natural, and laboriously unliterary. It is inimitable and perfect as long as he keeps it fresh and renewed. It becomes insipid and stale as soon as the suspicion of a cliché arises. When he speaks of nature and landscape, he almost invariably keeps it fresh. But in the direct description of sentiment, he very often sinks into the rut of self-imitation. His pitfalls are the false, beautiful, and the languid nothing can be more insipid than the sentiments of the ideal heroine Elena in On the Eve. This danger of the false beautiful lies in the very nature of Turgenev's method. It is not analytical, it is what one might call poetical or suggestive. He does not describe the feelings of his characters, but tries to produce an atmosphere of sympathy, and to evoke in the reader responsive emotions by purely emotional means. In this he differs from Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but comes very near to Chekhov. It may be contended that his poetical effects are less perfect and successful than Chekhov's, and it is certain that he could never attain to that unity of composition, which is the great strength of the younger master. What most modern readers will dislike in Turgenev is his, quote humor. It is neither the loud, honest laugh of Dickens, nor the kind, contemptuously sympathetic smile of Chekhov. It is a sneer, often unmanly and always self-conscious. Another feature of Turgenev's, which is quite out of tune with our tastes, is his conversations on social and intellectual topics. Usually they are hors d'oeuvre, quite unassimilated to the body of the story. They are pieces of indifferent journalism painfully encrusted on a beautiful fabric. Here again he is poles apart from both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, whose conversations are never irrelevant and carry on the main impulse of the story. Like most Russian novelists, Turgenev is, first of all, a great creator of characters. They have not the absolute reality of Tolstoy's people, nor the intense, fantastic vividness of Dostoevsky's. They are on a more conventional and more artistic plane. His art of character painting goes back to Pushkin. It is in the tradition of Yevgeny Onegin. Conversation has little and analysis no part in the shaping of his personages. Their individuality is produced by the subtle and elusive methods of atmosphere. Turgenev's best and most memorable characters, with the notable exception of Bazarov, are his women, especially his young girls, Liza in A House of Gentlefolk, Folk, Asya, the heroine of The Backwater, There is certainly an element of poetical or romantic idealism in these creations, and perhaps just a little lack of backbone. But if Turgenev had not created Bazarov, they would have remained his principal claim to equality with the great Russian novelists. Bazarov is something of a miracle. So isolated and unexpected is he in the midst of Turgenev's portrait gallery. But he is also, after all, a creation of atmosphere, and his individuality lies in a subtle halo of tragedy woven round him by the cunning poet, rather than in the quote-unquote strong silentness of his character. One of the eminent French admirers of Turgenev compared his work with Greek tragedy. This is, of course, too complimentary. Turgenev's conception of the human universe is the typical, decadent, 19th-century conception. It is a world of human weakness and blind chance. Irreligious, but not courageous enough to be an atheist and passive, Durgenev could but be a pessimist, and his pessimism is relieved only by the romantic visions of love and beauty, beautiful, fleeting, frail things, veiling from the unwilling eye, the dreadful abysses of non-entity. But there is not in Turgenev an ounce of the active, manly, fearless pessimism of Thomas Hardy. The unhappy ending of all Turgenev's stories has been often noted. It is, of course, first of all, a literary convention, a mannerism, if you like, but a convention and a mannerism highly characteristic of the man and of his age, A happy ending was to Turgenev something incredibly vulgar. Like Renan and Chekhov, he despised success. The great majority of his heroes do not deserve success, but twice in his career he created, or tried to create, under the stimulus of external forces, men who deserved it, in Sarov, on the Eve, and Bazarov. Bazarov, of course, as he was created by Turgenev, not as he was imagined by the younger radicals, was not at all a deserver of success. He was called into existence just to be broken down by Ananke, a brave little mouse to be played with by the great, merciless cat of destiny, like the brave little sparrow in one of the poems in prose. Consequently, he is a great creation in the true spirit of his creator. Bazarov's unhappy end is in complete harmony with the whole conception. In Sarov, the strong Bulgarian of On the Eve transcended the power of Turgenev. He is ludicrously inadequate. He is, of course, meant to, quote-unquote, deserve success, And there is no reason in the world, except in Turgenev's world, why he should not command it. But to succeed would have been to become a Philistine. To let him be victorious would have been, aesthetically, to kill him. It would have been a grave breach of courtesy on the part of the author. So he has the privilege of suddenly falling ill and dying in the very appropriate scenery of Venice, and is thus unexpectedly redeemed from the abomination of success. On the Eve is the worst of Turgenev's works. No one will call it a good novel. But nowhere is it easier to lay the finger on the mainsprings of Turgenev's effeminate, romantic and aesthetic pessimism. This effeminate and passive pessimism has been supposed to be typically Russian. Renan, a fellow pessimist, spoke to this effect in his eloquent funeral oration. As a matter of fact, it is typical of the cosmopolitan Europe of the 19th century, and Renan himself is at least as eminent a spokesman of it. It is also typical of the dying civilization of the gentry and the hamlet-like generation of the 40s, It was this heritage that was taken up by the still more decadent Intelligentsia in the work of its greatest writer, Chekhov. For the general reader at home, and especially abroad, Turgenev has eclipsed all the other novelists of his generation, except the major lights of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. But before the writers of that age were finally pigeonholed according to their respective importance, the table of precedence had been otherwise. A critic, writing about 1862, might mention Tolstoy and Dostoevsky among the second rank of writers, reserving the first places for Turgenev and Goncharov without any sense of incongruity. It was a long time before Goncharov was displaced from a position of equality with Turgenev. To this day the analysis of his novels is inflicted on Russian schoolboys and schoolgirls at even greater length than that of Turgenev's. But if the schoolmaster sticks to him, the reader has abandoned him, for the good reason that whatever other qualities they may have, his novels are distinctly tedious. Yet the historian cannot abandon him so lightly and must reserve for him a very prominent place a place of honor, even, for of all Russian writers, Goncharov is most representative of the peculiar idiosyncrasies of the Russian school of fiction. The life of Ivan Alexandrovich Goncharov was uninteresting and uneventful. He was born in 1812 in Simbirsk, on the middle of Volga of a wealthy merchant family who had adopted the mode of life and culture of the gentry. He studied at Moscow and passed most of his life in St. Petersburg in the civil service. The only incident in his life worth mentioning is his voyage to Japan in 1854-1855, which he described in The Frigate Pallada. The only other events are the publications of his three novels, A Common Story, in 1847, Oblomov, in 1858, and The Precipice, in 1869. He died in 1891. Of his novels, the most famous is Oblomov, which appeared in the same year as A House of Gentlefolk. It produced a greater sensation than any single one of Turgenev's novels. It became the special favorite of the critics, for it realized all they demanded from a novel. It may be taken as the type of the Russian novel in which all its peculiarities, as enumerated in the beginning of this chapter, are most fully developed. It is very long, has four parts, and contains some 250,000 words. Goncharov took about ten years writing it, It is the life story of a Russian gentleman, Ilya Oblomov, who is made to be the incarnation of sloth and conscious inefficiency, coupled with no mean amount of intellect and talent. The subject made it a splendid springboard for the exercise of critical eloquence, and it was no doubt written with a very distinct view of creating a synthetic and comprehensive symbol of a certain aspect of Russian life. It is not exhilarating reading, but it is very powerful, a work of genius, and, in its way, a perfect work of art. It is indeed convincingly symbolic and synthetic, and the gradual growth of the inevitable doom of the unfit man is developed with a cunning and unerring hand. The general impression is overpowering, almost elemental. The passive sloth and slovenly weakness of oblomov looms on the reader as a sort of superhuman entity a terrible gray unclean and sticky monster this effect is achieved without the smallest falling off from a strictly realistic standard and is for that reason doubly effective the novel is the crowning glory of what miss harrison has very aptly called the quote-unquote imperfective style in literature. The name Oblomov has given rise to the word Oblomovshina, Oblomovdom, which, to quote Miss Harrison, means the imperfective state incarnate. Oblomov, she goes on to say, is the incarnation of what Russians call chalatnist, the quality of dressing-gowness. Oblomov's dressing gown is described with loving, appreciative detail. It is a big, soft, roomy, Asiatic dressing gown, easy to get into, almost impossible to get out of. It haunts the book like an Ibsen symbol. It stands for the impossibility of being, quote unquote, well-groomed physically and mentally, end quote. Goncharov's remaining two novels are less significant. The common story is a series of more or less disconnected episodes contrasting with mathematical elegance, the mentality of a romantic youth and of his practical uncle, and ending in the romantic youth becoming a practical businessman. The precipice contains much first-class character drawing and a charming description of old-world, country-town life. It has more narrative interests than Oblomov, but it lacks the superior touch of genius. In all the most pathetic and thrilling parts, it is, quote-unquote, just wrong, and altogether it belongs to the second best. A writer very unlike both Goncharov and Turgenev was Alexey Theofilaktovich Pisimsky. In the great days of the social novel, he was invariably quoted as third in a trio which included the other two. If Goncharov is supremely typical of Bisemsky stands outside the main current of Russian fiction. He lacks two of the main features of the quote-unquote Russian school, the ethical foundation and the neglect of plot. He is more akin to Balzac than to any one of his Russian contemporaries. As a mere storyteller, he excels all Russian novelists except Leskov. His principal drawback is his style, which lacks art and distinction, and in his later work degenerates into the ugliest journalese. Even in his best period, 1850 to 1860, it is just inoffensive. His first story, The Muff, 1850, is perhaps his best. It is very gloomy and lacks the idealism of Turgenev, but it is gloomy in the way Balzac is gloomy, not in the way Goncharov is. His longest work is the powerful novel A Thousand Souls, which appeared 1858. It is the story of a brilliant, unscrupulous, but honest arriviste it is somewhat less consistently pessimistic in its view of humanity, for it is relieved by the charming, delicately painted, and entirely unidealized figure of the heroine Nasta. Unlike most Russian novels, but like Balzac's, its plot is based on a business affair, and it abounds in thrilling interest of the Balzacian type. Besides stories of quote-unquote educated life, Pisimsky wrote stories of the people, like The Petersburger and The Carpenters. They contain wonderfully powerful studies of the strong and passionate type of Russians of the uneducated classes. There is in these stories a forecast of Leskov. Elsewhere I shall have to mention Pisimsky as the author of the best realistic tragedy in the Russian language. Piszemski's stories of quote-unquote popular life may introduce us to the provincial ethnographical novel, which flourished side by side with the quote-unquote genteel or intelligentsia novel of Turgenev and Goncharov. Few of the provincial novelists rise above mediocrity, but one should mention Andrei Pichersky, pseudonym of P.I. Melnikov, 1819 to 1883 author of the two four volume novels about old believers footnote dissenters who refused to accept certain new rites and customs introduced in the Russian church about 1660 and a footnote in the woods and on the hills they contain some good character drawing and an immense wealth of observation of this singularly conservative community Nadezhda Kochanovsky, pseudonym of Madame Sochansky, 1825-1884, in her stories of the life of the little Russian steppe gentry, reveals a very personal strain of sentimental humor. Her best stories deal with the rough and picturesque provincial life of the 18th century and deserve a place by themselves, independent of but complementary to Aksakov. In the novels of Turgenev, as distinct from his shorter stories and of Goncharov, there is an appreciable amount of journalism. In Fathers and Sons, in Rudin and in Oblomov, it is welded into an organic unity with the imaginative core. But in a less perfect work, like Smoke, The journalistic element stands apart and is as distinct from the main creative stream of the novel as oil is from water. In this compulsory introduction of themes of actuality into imaginative work there lay the germ of a development that was not slow to follow. Fiction took a decided turn towards journalism. It began to dispense with the discipline and conventions of the narrative form, and tended to become mere typical description with a purpose. This tendency is best illustrated in the work of Mikhail Yevgrafovich Soltikov, 1826 to 1889, who wrote under the pseudonym of N. Shedrin. Himself a member of the gentry, and for many years an important provincial official, he devoted his talents to satirizing the Russian bureaucracy in all its aspects, and combating the conservative policy of the landowning class, undermined but not abolished by the emancipation. Later on, he added to his enemies the new parvenu and unprincipled bourgeoisie created by the capitalistic excitement that followed the reforms. His first satirical sketches appeared in 1857. He continued producing them till his death. Towards the end of his life, Especially after the death of Nekrasov, he became the principal spokesman of Russian radicalism. His sketches, it must be confessed, offer little to attract anyone today. His earlier work is amusing, but it lacks not only the higher qualities of genius, but also sufficient moral earnestness to make up for its lack of distinction. By a curious irony of fate, his Provincial Sketches and his History of a Town, a witty burlesque of the history of Russia, became the favorite reading of the official class satirized in them. His later sketches are more serious, but less readable. They are full of obscure allusions to wholly forgotten topics. On a higher level are his Fables, Skasky, where he achieves a greater degree of artistic concision. Some of them are delightfully epigrammatic and pointed. His last work is Old Times in Poshikonye, a very tendentious but vastly planned synthetic picture of the Russian gentry in the times of serfdom. Saltykov would remain a secondary figure in Russian literary history were it not for one book, his only regular novel, The Golovliov Family, which places him on a level with the very greatest. Like so many Russian novels, it is the story of the undoing of a life, or rather of a whole family, and it is saturated with a more than ordinary gloominess. It is like Poshikonya, the quote-unquote natural history of a family of landowners, The picture it offers of the bestiality, meanness, moral and intellectual poverty of the Golovlev family is unilluminated by a single redeeming ray. For consistent gloom, the book has no equal. Wuthering Heights is cheerful compared with it, but in its kind of cruel literature it is a masterpiece and allows us to place its author in the first rank of Russian novelists. After 1860, a new generation of raznocincy, men of all ranks, came forward and occupied the literary stage. The first of these was Nikolai Gerasimovich Pomelovsky, 1835-1863, to who sprang into popularity through a series of depressingly gloomy pictures of life in the ecclesiastical schools. He was a man of considerable talent, and his unfinished novel Brother and Sister contains much that makes one regret his early death. But his school sketches are, after all, mere descriptive journalism. His contemporaries followed him and Saltykov in turning fiction into journalism. The most famous writer of the group in his own day was Gleb Uspensky, 1840-1902, A man of great gifts and unusually delicate moral sensitiveness. But the formlessness, proxility, and excessive actuality of his descriptive sketches have made them unreadable. There were other men of promise in the generation. They experimented in form and tried to cast aside the conventions of fiction, but they had too little culture for anything to come of their experiments. On the whole, the generation born between 1828, birth of Tolstoy, and 1860, birth of Chekhov, was remarkably poor in literary achievement, if compared with either the preceding or the following generations. This is partly made up for by the fact that it produced the greatest generation of Russian composers, including Tchaikovsky, Mussorgsky, and Rimsky-Korsakov. There is one writer of the generation who deserves mention. This is Ivan Afanasyevich Kushevsky, 1847 to 1876, a young Siberian who failed in life and died of drink. But his only novel, Nicholas Negorev or The Happy Russian, 1871, is a perfectly delightful book which holds its own even when compared with the greatest It is a story of schoolboys' and students' life in the 50s. His characters are wonderfully alive, his humor is deliciously fresh, and he has a beautiful lightness of touch, which is unique among the somewhat bear-like geniuses of Russian literature. Midway between the great old man and the inferior younger generation, his work, resembling neither, stands Nikolai Semyonovich Leskov, He was born in 1831 in Oriol, and his descent was also mixed. His mother was a gentlewoman, his father a priest's son. His early years passed under mixed influences, among which that of an English Quaker friend of the family was conspicuous. Leskov, unlike almost every other Russian writer, did not study at a university and did not enter the government service. He was for many years agent for a Mr. Scott, an Englishman who was chief steward of a nobleman's large estate. In this employment, Leskov came into contact with all classes of people and learned to know them from an angle other than that of the official and landed classes. This, to a certain extent, explains the great originality of his writings and of his vision of Russian life. He began writing late. His first story appeared in 1863. He was at one time very unpopular with the radicals, even boycotted by them. But he was not a reactionary. He had his own ideas on things, and they did not fit in with any party program. The critics took scant notice of him, but the reading public soon began to value him at his just worth. Some of his stories were much appreciated in court circles, especially by the empress Marie Alexandrovna, Alexander II's consort, and he was given a sinecure in the civil service. But he left it when he found himself in disagreement with the government. In his later years he came under the influence of the ideas of Tolstoy, but as a writer he always remained amazingly original. He died in 1895. Liskov's best-known work is Soboriani, in English the title is Cathedral Folk, which has been translated into English and has caused its author to be rather inappropriately dubbed a Russian trollop. It is a very good book, full of humor and excellent character drawing. It is, quote-unquote, imperfective in scheme but the author's personality asserts itself in the introduction of purely anecdotic matter. The chief character, deacon Achilla, and the archpriest Tubirozov, Tuberosov, a strong and righteous but meticulous man, are among the most memorable in the portrait gallery of Russian fiction. But Soborany is not typical of Leskov, precisely on account of its quote-unquote imperfectiveness. For Lyskov is the most purely narrative of all Russian novelists. He is a great storyteller, in fact, the greatest of Russian storytellers. Many a story of his contains more wealth of incident than the whole of Turgenev and Goncharov. Such stories as The Enchanted Wanderer or The Sealed Angel have a wonderfully rapid narrative development sustained with consummate skill and are very unlike the ordinary conception of Russian fiction. Some are mere anecdotes, but told with a skill that makes them great literature. Some are uproariously funny, full of preposterous puns and extraordinary slang invented on the spur of the moment. There is nothing more farcical than the story of the left-handed smith of Tula and his adventures in England, other are concentrated tragedies, something after the manner of Stendhal's Italian novelle. The tragedies are violent, based on the passions of simple but strongly feeling men and women, who are easily roused to violent action. His Russian characters, a foretaste of whom is to be found in some of Pisemsky's stories, are poles apart from the Russians of Turgenev, Tolstoy or Chekhov, There is no morbidity in Leskov's heroes, and no undue analysis of psychology in his method. All the psychology is conveyed by direct action. But Leskov has the deep-rooted ethical background of the Russian novelists, and he loves to bring forward the generosity and charity of the simple and humble, in contrast to the great and clever. Leskov is one of the most Russian of Russian writers, though he may not answer to the English idea of what is Russian. He has a greater and fuller knowledge of the Russian character and an infinitely wider range of observation than any other single Russian writer. He knows all classes, from the highest to the very outcasts, vagabonds, convicts, tramps. The class, later on, quote unquote, discovered by Gorky, had been treated by Lyskov with greater truth and intense sympathy. He knows all the extremes of sanctity and crime, nor does he neglect the middle layers of humdrum virtue and vulgar vice. He is, in fact, the most comprehensive epitome of the complex and many-sided Russian life in the mid-19th century. His stories are also a treasure house of the raciest and richest Russian The narratives are usually put into the mouth of one of the characters, and Leskov richly avails himself of the occasion to unfold an astounding fertility of verbal invention and a peerless mastery of his mother tongue. In his later years, under the influence of Tolstoy, he turned to a different style and wrote stories of early Christian life. Meant for a moral end, they rather miss it, in spite of the author's sound moral sense. They are too attractively told, the narrative is too captivating, and the picture he unfolds of late Roman Antioch and Alexandria too glowingly picturesque and pagan to leave much place for edification. But his methods are infinitely remote from those of the ordinary historical novelists, for he succeeds in assimilating the naïve spirit of the Byzantine hagiologists. Very popular from the outset with the public, Leskov was long neglected by the critics. Recently there has been a great revival of interest in his work. Many modern novelists try to imitate the raciness of his Russian. But his best qualities, and most of all, the manly and vigorous directness of his narrative remain as yet unassimilated. In a better understanding of Lyskov, there lies much promise of a revival of Russian fiction. End of section 2